Well, good morning. This is the uh, second week in our study of the Ten Commandments. For those of you who weren't here last Sunday, we uh, are taking a break for the month of June from uh, our study of Luke, and we're going to be studying the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Uh, This is a study that I am both frustrated by and excited about. I'm frustrated because there is so much packed in each one of these commandments that we just don't have time to talk about it all. But I am excited because there's so much packed in each of these commandments that uh, the stuff that we get to look at is, is great stuff. So let's get into our study as quickly as possible. Before I do, I want to remind you of the caution when we study the law. We are not studying this in order to, to figure out how to obey the law and, and earn, gain God's acceptance. And Paul makes it very clear, especially Romans 3, that it's impossible for any of us to come to God on that basis. He says that by the works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. There are none righteous, not even one. See, we don't come and study this so that we can obey it and gain God's acceptance. We study this because we already have his acceptance. We are completely accepted in Christ. We study this in order to respond to his love, by, by learning more about him, who he is, and how we can honor him with our conduct. You see, he already loves us in Christ, and we just want to learn how to love him back. So let's get into our first commandment. Actually, the third commandment in verse 11. Deuteronomy 5, 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Or as the NIV translates it, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now I ask you, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? Well, that's true. That, that, that we as humans basically name everything, and those names differ from culture to culture, from language to language. In fact, this is God's plan, His design. From the very beginning, the first thing that, that God had Adam do was to name everything else, to name all of creation told in Genesis 2.19, whatever Adam called a living creature, that was its name. So it's part of being human to name everything, and, and we have named everything except for one, God. He chose his own name. Now, human language has a lot of words for God, and even the Hebrew language has, uh, has a large number of words for God, but God only has One name, the name that he has chosen for himself. God chose his own name because names matter. Names distinguish one thing from another. And God very definitely wanted to distinguish himself from the other things that people worship. Even more than that, a name matters because a name reveals something about a person. God chose his name specifically and carefully. And the name that God chose for himself is Yahweh. That's the Hebrew word for it, Yahweh. That's his name. It literally means I am. 
God chose the name I am. And in choosing that name, he's telling us something about who he is. He is. He exists. In fact, he is the foundation of of all existence. And without going too far into some of the the ontological discussion of God as the primogenitor and the, the first cause, the fact is he is the basis of all existence. He exists. And everything else exists because he imagined it and brought it into being. Every, everything else is dependent on him for its existence. We are, are dependent on him for our existence. He is the only independent existence. He created all the rest. Now, I love to talk about this. I love to think about this. Uh, love nothing more than sit around a coffee shop with some people and talk about the existence of God and, and how that reflects on our existence, how we were created in His imagination and exist in His thinking and, and in His creation. When I was a college pastor, I used to have what we called uh, office hours in the student union building. I'd get a table at the sub and uh, maybe five or six guys would show up and we would talk about this kind of thing. We'd spend a couple hours every week We'd start talking about the meaning of existence and existence in God. Eventually, by the end of the conversation, we were talking about girls every week. But we would start talking about some of these deeper matters of God. And I absolutely loved it. Let's go on. On a little less philosophical vein, his name, I Am, has very practical application to our daily lives. He is the true God. And other gods are not. Other gods are not God. They are merely creatures, either demons or or creations of our own imagination. He is the one we need. He is the answer to our deepest longings. He is the one who loves us. He is the Savior. He is the giver of life and joy and peace. He is See, the most fundamental thing you can know about God is that He is. He exists. You know, sometimes we are so spiritually dull that we don't even really grasp that, that He exists. Not in our imagination. We exist in His, in His creation. He called us into being. The most fundamental thing is that He is. And in choosing that name, that I am, He wants us to see Him as he is, the unique ground of being, the unique fulfillment and fulfiller of all of our need. Have you ever noticed that the name Yahweh isn't found in your Bible? Most of your Bibles will not have that name written down. Now, this is because from very early on, the Jewish scribes were so careful not to violate this commandment of taking that name in vain, uselessly, that they would not even write the name of God. Even in the Hebrew editions, what you have there, they would write the consonants for Yahweh, but then they would substitute the vowels for Adonai, Lord, because they they were worried that they would write the name in an unworthy manner, or somebody would read it out loud and use it in vain. So they made sure that if somebody was reading it out loud, they would mispronounce it. And when a scribe read the scriptures out loud, and when they came to the name, they would say, Lord, instead of Yahweh. Because they were wanting to be so careful with that name. It was so precious. 
I'm sure most of you have heard of, of, of the word Jehovah, Jehovah. What that is, is a mispronunciation. That's the pronunciation of the consonants in Yahweh and the vowels from Adonai. In your Bibles, in my Bible, what the uh, editors have chosen to do, instead of writing the name Jehovah, transliterating it, they have chosen the Kathiv, the tradition in Jewish, uh, Jewish tradition, of substituting the word Lord for the name. So when you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters in your translation, like in verse 11, that is Yahweh. Where it says, the Lord your God. That is Yahweh your God. That is His name. But we've been protected by uh, substituting another name. Now, do you think this protects us from using the Lord's name in vain? Well, to some degree, but I don't think what he's talking about is just carelessly pronouncing the name of God. I think he's talking about much more. His name stands for who he is, for what he is. See, in choosing his name... God has revealed himself to us. He has exposed himself to some degree. When you share something with someone else about who you are, really who you are, about yourself, you've made yourself vulnerable to that person. And I think using the name of the Lord in vain, taking it uh, carelessly, is taking carelessly the fact that God has revealed himself, has given something of himself. It's treating it, it like nothing, that the God of the universe, the great I am, has chosen to make himself vulnerable to some degree, to himself exposed, to reveal himself to us. And it's taking that self-revelation of God and using it for selfish purposes. So how do we treat as nothing God's self-revelation? Well, there's a lot of ways. I think the way that first jumps in most people's mind is profanity. Is using the word God or the name of Jesus as expletives. Now, by the way, God also chose the name of Jesus and, and told it to the angel to give to Mary. But even though using the, the word God or the name Jesus is not a violation of the letter of this law because this is talking about the name Yahweh, it certainly is a violation of the spirit of the law because it's treating as nothing something that is extremely precious. It's treating with disrespect him to whom all respect is due. But I think there's an awful lot of other ways that we treat as nothing the name of God, ways that don't initially come to mind. In fact, the way that was most often spoken against in the Old Testament is taking the name of God and using it to, to validate, to, to, to give credibility to our own words or our own programs. See, false prophets would stand up and say, Thus saith Yahweh. And then what they would say would be whatever their own uh, imaginations or their own self-interest led them to say. Now, they would claim that this was the word of God, but really what it was was their own words, with their own devices, their own plans. They would attach the name of God to a lie. Now, today, people do that. Jesus was very clear in the New Testament. Don't attach the name of God to your, 
your vows to swearing it's true. I, I mean, I hear kids all the time, I swear to God, which you know they're lying. As soon as they say that, you know they're lying. We attach the, 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 the name of God to our plans. And this happens in people who stand up and say, it's God's will for you to support my ministry. It's for you to do this thing. People will speak as if they have the word of God beyond what's written, beyond what's given us in this book. Now, it may be God's will for you to support a certain ministry, but it is an abuse of the name of God to, to manipulate people to doing what you want them to do by using God's name to pressure them, to move them. It's wrong. Brian Morgan quotes uh, Ray Steadman. Ray says, God does not enter our lives to take our side, to join our causes. He enters our lives to take over, to move over. You see, God is God. And I've had, I've had people come to me and say, I know this is against what Scripture says, but God's telling me to do it. I say, that's garbage. It's just not true. Don't attach God's name to, to your own worthless ideas. Don't attach God's name to your own sinful choices. There's a clear uh, command to let God be God. His name should only be attached to His Word, to His plans, not our own. Another way we treat His name uh, as nothing is when we simply don't believe Him. We say, well, I know it says that in the Bible, but I just don't believe it. I'm guilty of this myself. Maybe not in word. I'm not maybe that that bald in my statement, but in my action. I know that God says in, in His Word, that he loves me and he will take care of me, yet I still live an anxious life. I know that, that by his name, he said that he can handle anything that comes my way because he is the great I am. Yet I keep trying to take care of it myself and handle it all myself. You see, I hear his word attached to his name, but I choose not to believe it. I treat the, the, the ground of all existence as if he's not even there, as if he doesn't exist. I, I, I treat the reality of realities as if he was unreal. Now, probably the, one of the most dangerous ways we treat his name as nothing is when we gather to worship in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a formal, stale way. We come together and we call on the name of the Lord, and yet we don't really expect... To, to experience His presence. We sing the songs, we, we say the words, but without meaning. Our, our, our mouths and our bodies are going through the motion, but our hearts and our minds are, are, are elsewhere. Well, this first, uh, or this third commandment, God says, if you treat His name as worthless, you won't get away with it. You'll suffer consequences in your lives. So how do we treat His name as important? How do we value it? Well, let me ask you, how do you treat anyone's self-revelation as important? How do you value it? Well, if, if say a friend came to you, told you about some, some pain from their past, some deep fear that they live with every day, some, uh, some great desire or, or ambition in their life, how do you treat that information 
as important? How do you value it? Well, you think about it. You really listen to what they're saying. And you explore it with them. You find out what it means, especially what it means to them. And you let it affect the way you, you think about them. You let it affect the way that you treat them. Well, in the same way, the way we treat God's self-revelation, giving us His name, the way you treat that with honor and, 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 and as important is you think about it. And you explore it with Him. You discover what it means. And you let that affect the way you treat Him. You let that affect the way you think about Him. You, you let it affect the way you live in a way that gives honor, that, that, that reflects that self-revelation. He is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. He is the one who created us. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who provides everything we need. He is the great I Am. Now let's hurry on to the, to the next commandment. Unfortunately, I hurry on to most things. In fact, uh, recently the staff, um, the, the church staff was, uh, during one of our staff meetings, taking some time to try to help me figure out why I hurry so much, why I rush from one thing to another, not just in my preaching, but in my life. And the elders have been kind of working on me, working with me, to get me to slow down, to, to take some time off, to not work such long hours. But why don't I? And I have to look at myself and ask that question honestly. And I think this commandment has an awful lot to say, an awful lot to help with all of us, why we live such hurried, busy, often frantic lives. Now, I've got to tell you before we get into this commandment that this is probably the hardest one for me to, to talk about, not because it's not an exciting commandment. In fact, I think I'm more excited about what I'm learning from this commandment than I am from any of the rest. But in talking about this one, I feel more like a hypocrite than I do in talking about any of the rest. And one other thing, as a disclaimer, I'm giving you all my disclaimers before we get into this. Anything that you hear of value out of this discussion, I got from David Roper, I can guarantee that. Now, that's true generally of, of most of the things I know, that I've learned an awful lot through him. But in this particular commandment, there he has a paper that really formed the foundation of my thinking on this commandment. Now, let me read this commandment, starting at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, or your donkey, or any other of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Okay, this is the longest of all the commandments. I mean, he goes into detail, goes into explanation. 
This is the one that God seems to make the biggest deal of. And and throughout the Old Testament, this is the one he keeps coming back to as proof that the children of Israel were were not following him. He says, they break my Sabbath. It's a big deal to God. In fact, this is the sign of faithfulness to God. He's keeping his Sabbath. In, In Exodus 31, 16, God says, The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. See, it's proof to God that the Israelites were listening, that they were being faithful. It's something that God takes very seriously. In fact, in Numbers 15, there's a story about a guy that sneaks out on the Sabbath out into the wilderness and starts collecting wood. And they catch him. And they bring him to God, and God says, execute him. Violation of this commandment was a capital offense. Now, that seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? And that seems a bit excessive. You know, what's going on? Why is this command so important? Why does God make such a big deal of it? Especially since it doesn't seem... To really be a moral issue at all, you know, you can think, you can understand why he says don't have idols. That makes sense. And, and the, the prohibitions against murder and, and adultery and lying and stealing, those are all intuitively obvious. But why the big deal about keeping the Sabbath? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Well, let's look a little closer. Not only is this the longest of the commandments, this is the only commandment that is changed between the Exodus account and the Deuteronomy account. See, in Exodus 20, when God gave this commandment, His reason that He gave was because God created the world and everything in it in six days, and on the seventh day He rested. And in honor of that, in respect for for God as our Creator, we are to rest on the seventh day. Now, here in Deuteronomy, the reason He gives... For, for resting is that our spiritual ancestors were slaves in Egypt where they had no rest. And now God, by His own doing, by His own power, delivered them from Egypt to give them rest. Okay, now what is the difference here? And why are both explanations given? Why Why does it differ? Now, let me ask you some questions. When God created the world, how did you help? What did you contribute to that process? What did any person contribute to that process? Absolutely nothing. When God delivered His people out of Egypt, how did they help? What did they contribute to the process? Absolutely nothing. You see, God didn't need their help. He chose to create them, to create us, and to give us life purely on His own initiative and by His own goodness. God chose to deliver them, give them rest, purely on His own initiative and out of His own goodness. You see, God wants them to realize that it is He who always works on their behalf. He did it in the past, He does it in the present, and He will do it in the future. Their efforts didn't create them, didn't save them, and cannot sustain them now. 
God wants them to understand that clearly. God does it. And he doesn't need their frantic efforts and, and running around, incessant work to make it happen, to take care of them. See, the, the Sabbath was a time of living out this faith, of trusting God, demonstrate they really believed that God could take care of them and that God would take care of them, not their own frantic efforts. This was the demonstration to prove that they really believed this. They would take a whole day off, even when there were crops that needed harvesting, even when there was uh, uh, another meeting to go to, even when there were uh, um, other deliveries that needed to be made, even when there was still a pile of paper on their desk or a pile of clothes in the laundry, even when there was another sales call to be made, even when there was another room to clean, another chore to be done. See, this was the demonstration that it doesn't depend on, on, on running around of all my efforts. It's a demonstration that, no, I believe, I honestly, really, in real life, believe that God is the one who's working on my behalf, that He takes care of it that He is taking care of me. It's saying, I really believe that God is in control and He will take care of me. He is God and I am not. He is the great I am and I am not. He will take care of me and my family and I will not. You see, He is the one who cares for us. In other words, the Sabbath was the one commandment that was a pure expression of, of faith. I trust God, not my own efforts. Jesus seemed to violate this one command with impunity. He didn't seem to, to, to worry too much about it. He would still heal people on the Sabbath. He'd help them. He'd take care of their needs. And when he was confronted with this, when he was challenged on this in, in John 5, his explanation was, well, my father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. And people back then, it says in that account in John 5, were incensed because they knew he was making himself equal with God by saying that. You see, God is the only one who has the right to work on the Sabbath. And the logic is that God works every day. And the Sabbath is just the day that we set aside to acknowledge that to recognize that, to say we know that and we believe that. It's purely an expression that we trust that God is always working on our behalf. We trust Him every day, not ourselves. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we shouldn't do anything on Sunday? We should just kind of lay around, hang out? Well, a lot of people take this that way. But in Colossians 2... Paul says, do not let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink or festival or new moon or a Sabbath day. Things that were a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Paul says, don't let anybody be your judge. Don't let anybody dictate to you that you have to take from Friday evening to Saturday evening off or Sunday off. See, the Sabbath is no longer an imposed, a mandatory day off. Why not? 
Because it's insignificant? No, it's very significant. But what Paul says is that the day off was merely a picture of the rest that we would find in Christ. Now let me take you to Hebrews. I know I'm, I'm running you around a lot, but stick with me. This is, this is good stuff. It's worth the chase. Hebrews 4. So we see that they were not able to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. And a little later on he says, there, Therefore remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, For everyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Okay, let me bring this together. The issue is belief. It's meeting God's word with faith. See, the people of Israel didn't believe God, and so they never entered into that rest. They never enjoyed that rest. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't miss out yourselves. Don't fail to believe God, because if you fail to believe God, then you're not going to experience that rest. You're not going to enjoy that rest. What is it we are to believe? That our lives, our survival, our ministries, our self-image, none of this stuff depends on our own efforts. All of this All of these are things that God has already provided for us in Christ. He sent His Son to die for our sins, to to meet our spiritual needs, and to become our righteousness. And in Christ, He's going to meet all of our need, every one of them. And what, what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do is to really believe that and to stop thrashing around trying to take care of it ourselves. You know, even our best work, our hardest effort, if God's not in it, it just crumbles and turns to dust. So he says, stop running around thinking you can take care of it yourself. Stop running around as if it all depended on you. Relax. Trust Him. Honor His Sabbath. Accept His care. Accept His love. Psalm 127, Solomon wrote, Unless Yahweh builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over a city, the watchmen watch in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For Yahweh gives to those He loves even while they sleep. There are two things I want you to notice here. First of all, it's not that the builder doesn't work or that the watchman doesn't watch. Honoring the Sabbath does not mean being lazy. In fact, uh, if, you, if you look at the commandment carefully, it says, for six days you shall work. I mean, that's the fact. We were created to work and to work hard. Hard work is good. The Scripture tells us we are to do our work to our absolute best, to God's glory, because we ultimately serve Him. Hard work is good. Here's the second point. 
We work hard for His glory, but we don't trust that hard work. We work hard for His glory and we trust Him. You see, it doesn't depend on us. Unless the Lord builds the house, it's a waste of your time. And there's no point killing yourself. There's no point rising early and working all of these long hours frantically trying to take care of yourself. It doesn't do you any good. It all doesn't depend on you anyway. In fact, what Solomon tells us is that God is at work. God is taking care of you. He's doing what's necessary even while you sleep. While you're not doing A thing. God is taking care of things. So relax. Trust Him. Work hard for His glory. But not out of fear. Not frantic. Listen how David Roper put it. Shabbat is not a day. It's a disposition. A mindset of resting in God for everything we have to do. Believing that God is at the heart of all our activity. And that all the demands upon us are demands upon Him. Shabbat is a profound conviction that God is working while we rest. A serene belief that there is a strong, experienced hand at the helm. And that God is working everything out for our good. Shabbat is rest from our labor. It is an unencumbered, unhurried, relaxed lifestyle that grows out of of a profound awareness that it is God who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. Philippians 2.13 So you see, honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy now is not just setting a day aside. It is the constant peace and rest of trusting Him, that He is taking care of things, that it depends on Him and not our frantic efforts. And that frees us to do our work with joy, with freedom, with fearlessness. Now, is that your experience? Is that how you live? If that was how I live, why would I have staff and elders coming trying to settle me down? What's going on here? See, I think we let Satan, and Charles Lamb calls him Sabbathless Satan. We let Satan rob us of the joy of our work. We work out of fear, not out of freedom. We work to try to gain our our, our self-image by our our performance rather than recognizing that that we gain our self-image by being children of God in Christ and then going back to work already secure in who we are. We work trying to find value. And so so, so we, we, we make ourselves indispensable rather than recognizing that our value comes from how much we are valued by God, valued in Christ, and then going back to work in order to give something to others. We work, as David Roper says, because that is our drug of choice. We work to avoid the pain of looking at ourselves and our failures and our weaknesses. We, we, we absorb ourselves in our work so we don't have to face our sin and our lack of relationships. Well, all the while, our Lord stands ready to forgive that sin, to heal those weaknesses, to give us relationship. We work to get things because we think by getting things we'll find satisfaction, but it doesn't work. 
while all along our Lord stands ready to give us the water that satisfies. We buy into Satan's lies. That it all depends on us. That our success and our survival depends on us. It does not. It all depends on God. Let me quote David Roper again. High-speed lives are essentially godless lives because we think we have no time for God. But we all have time if we know that God is minding the store. Once we get it into our heads that God really doesn't need us to get His work done, even and especially His work on our behalf, we begin to deal with our manic work habits. We can take time off now and then. We can take an hour each day or a portion of a day each week to be alone with God. We can take time to howdy with our friends and neighbors. We can take a day off each week. We can take a vacation. We can miss a meeting or two. We can leave some tasks undone at the end of each day and go home. We can take time to talk and take long walks with our spouses and kids. We can hunt fish, and golf with our friends, all of which reminds me of a conversation between Philip Melanchthon and Martin Luther. Martin Melanchthon said, This day we will discuss the governance of the universe. Luther replied, This day you and I will go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. So honoring the Sabbath, keeping it holy, is no longer a matter of just having a day separate. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of living perpetually in the confidence that God is running things. God is in control. And it's resting in that daily, constantly. Now, even though it is no longer to be defined as a specific time off, honestly, I don't think you can honor the Sabbath without taking some time uh, uh, regularly Often. Now, Paul's very clear. Don't let anybody dictate to you when that has to be, how you have to do that. That's legalism. But between you and God, as He shows you, plan to take some time just to confirm in your life that you really believe that He is in control and that He's taking care of things. Choose the discipline of walking away from the rat race now and then just to confirm in your own heart, to to remind yourself that God is in control and you can trust Him. Trust Him. Honor His Sabbath. Choose to take some time, whether you want to or not, even if you're afraid. Take some time to pet a dog. And don't just pet the dog, but, but while you're petting that dog, Marvel at God's goodness and delight in creating that dog for you to pet. Walk along a stream, but don't just walk along the stream. As you walk, just let it overwhelm you that God loves you absolutely right now, just as you are, because you're in Christ. Stop during the day and tell Him you trust Him. Thank Him. Tell Him you love Him. And then just go back to your work freely, with joy. So this, is, this is living in the Sabbath, living in the presence and the pleasure of God perpetually. That's His desire for you. 
That's His loving heart. He created the Sabbath for you, not you for the Sabbath. And it is His loving heart that commands us to do what we need to do. What is our delight, our freedom, our joy to do? Let me just end by reading the last two verses of Psalm 58. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own business on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and Yahweh's holiday honorable and shall honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own business and speaking your own word, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. God puts so much emphasis on this commandment because there's nothing more important than for you to learn to trust Him in thought and in word and in deed. Honor His Sabbath and discover your joy in the Lord. Let's pray. By the way, I'm going to take next Sunday off. Let's pray. Lord, I do confess how often I don't honor your name. I treat it as if it was nothing. You've spoken your word in your name, and I ignore it. You've uh, revealed yourself to me, and I treat that as if it was uh, just incidental, ho-hum, no big deal, that you've loved us enough to show yourself to us. And Lord, I want to honor you, who you are, who you've shown yourself to be, to not treat that casually, to not treat that with disrespect, but to treasure that above everything else, that you have given us your name. And Lord, what do I say about my Sabbath keeping, my Sabbath breaking? Lord, I want to live in that peace, to not let myself get frantic, to say no, knowing that my no doesn't limit you, but in fact frees you to use your body in different ways. Lord, I pray for each of us as we face uh, the pressures of financial need, as we face the, the, the pressures at work, when we face the demands of parenting and chauffeuring and, and uh, housework and maintaining a yard, all of the things that, that come at us. Lord, we want to stop, to acknowledge that you are the one who's in control, and then to make choices based on that, to walk away from it all, now and then, just to express our trust. In the midst of our fear, to choose to uh, live as if we really believed it. And then to see your faithfulness and come to believe it with all our heart. Lord, take your word today and change us, free us, so that we can express our love more completely and fully to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.